Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. The topic for this podcast is maximizing hybrid potential, targeting traits to improve yield and consistency. Recordings are from the second installment of the Canola Watch Winter Webinar Series, held live on December 13th. In this podcast, we will learn about the value of clubroot-resistant hybrids, genetic testing to choose black leg resistance genes, and how to prioritize traits for each field. We'll also have a quick preview of the new pod shatter rating system. We have four presenters, Brittany Vischer, Clinton Yerke, Aaron Willenberg, and Nicola Dow. As the presenters speak, you may hear them reference slides that you obviously can't see on this podcast. You can watch all segments of the webinar, including the slides, at youtube.com slash canola council. Brittany Vischer, formerly known as Brittany Hennig until she got married, is the research director for Alberta Canola and will start us off with a discussion on maximizing hybrid potential with a focus on club root resistant cultivars. Here's Brittany. In 2009, we uh, developed our first clever resistant cultivar that was commercially available. And I'll repeat this again later on, but the genetic basis of most clever resistant cultivars are not disclosed. So we do assume that the first batch uh, or first generation of clever resistant cultivars uh, are of the genetic basis with Mendel, which is a European winter rape seed cultivar. And it has a single dominant resistant gene. And so as those came out, those first generation pathotypes, or sorry, cultivars, we had resistance to pathotypes two, three, five, six, and eight. However, with major gene resistance, uh, we, we often see shifts in the pathogen populations. And so in 2013, we uh, saw significant clubroot symptoms on clubroot resistant uh, varieties. And when we isolated that pathotype, it was still identifying as five. However, it could overcome that first generation resistance. So we, the Canadian researchers thought we needed to create our own differentiating system to increase our capabilities of identifying them. Um, we initially named this one as 5X, which many people probably heard of uh, when it was first discovered because we were very worried about it. Uh, but we have since discovered many different pathotypes within Canada. And I could talk for quite a few minutes on the CCD set, but that's not the point. Uh, what I wanted to uh, bring your guys' attention to is at the bottom, those pathotypes two, three, five, six, and eight have now been identified and a letter has been attached to them as 2F3H5I6M and 8N. And that is how they're, they're identified on the CCD or the Canadian Clever Differential Set. Also, when you see that, uh, I, for all the C companies I looked at, they do a good job identifying that and attaching that letter. But say if you see something that is resistant to, to five, it doesn't mean that it's resistant to all the pathotypes starting with the number five. It's specifically referring to 5I, for example. And that goes for any two, three, six, or eight uh, pathotypes. We want to make sure we always have a number and a letter associated with them. Clipper resistant breakdown is. Uh, quite a misleading term because we don't actually have any breakdown of the genetics itself. Rather, we're just suppressing those specific pathotypes and allowing others to increase. 
So when we look at the Mendel resistance, uh, this is actually new updated information. Uh, so like I said, unofficially referred to as the first generation cultivars, uh, Mendel resistant is actually resistant to 18 different pathotypes. So it has a very robust resistance package. Uh, we did add a new pathotype from 2019 and 2020. Uh, however, we did add six more breaking pathotypes or, or pathotypes that um, can overcome Mendel resistance. And so, uh, yeah, seven new pathotypes discovered in 2019 and 2020. So that brings our total to 51 pathotypes that have been identified with the Canadian Cobra differential set. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't have this for province-wide, but specifically within Alberta, we have 321 fields now with confirmed erosion or breakdown. So we look at second generation or next generation, CR3, multigenetic, second, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what it is, it contains clubroot resistance that is different from or in addition to Mendel. And so the genetic basis, like I said before, it's not disclosed. So I, I list some examples at the bottom to show you how complicated it can get. So CS2000 is a Cantera variety and it has the, what we assume to be the Mendel genetic basis and it has immediate uh, intermediate resistance to 5X, 3O and 5K. Their other clever resistant variety, CS2600 is also resistant to Mendel with 2B, 5X, 3A and 3D. So just within one company, they have different resistance. And these are both um, coined as second generation resistance, but both different. Whereas we move into the Bravant 3010M, it has what we see or what it appears to be a similar resistance package to CS2600, but we don't know the exact genetic background uh, and where they source these resistance from. And so we don't know if they have different resistant genes or if they're stacked. Uh, so unfortunately, we just can't confirm whether the source of genetic resistance is the same or not. And that's where second generation gets complicated in uh, referring or recommending them. So what I want everyone to uh, gather from this is that second generation does not automatically mean that it's better. Uh, and especially, it's not a black and white, it's better for every situation or not. Uh, it really depends on your the, the specific field and your management practices and then also within that field what is the predominant pathotype and how are you how are you managing so that we don't have spore buildup club root disease is a very is very manageable but we need to be proactive of it which is why we need to grow club root resistant cultivars before we have a problem with club root and when i say in an integrated management uh, plan this is what i mean keep spores low, keep spores local, and then managing those patches. Depending on where you farm, you may implement all summer, none of these management strategies. But like I said, it's quite manageable and we need to be proactive. There was a, a very, uh, Canola Watch put out a, a good survey on just questioning farmers, what they do uh, to manage club root appropriately. And so prairie wide 50% have a crop rotation of at least two year break. Uh, and this is just to decrease the resting spores by 90%, as research has shown. We need to be proactive and scout, not just scout when we have a problem and you can see it above ground. We need to grow clever-resistant cultivars and then also control brassica weeds. And that includes, I should, I should list them out, stinkweed, flickweed, shepherd's purse, and mustard. 
Biosecurity remains to be the most effective tool at managing um, or, or preventing the movement of spores. However, it's a three-step process and it is not practical or realistic between every field during the busy season. About a 12-meter cultivator takes over four hours to complete those three steps. And so we need to be uh, mindful of where the equipment is coming from, maybe taking that three-step if you're buying a new piece of equipment or, um, or sorry, and making sure we're knocking out those big clumps of soil, leaving wet fields because 10 spores can fit across the width of your hair. So there's a ton of spores um, that are in big clumps of soil. And then also reducing tillage. It wasn't this uh, survey put out for uh, patch management, but I was procrastinating writing my thesis and I did put out a survey, very official survey on Twitter. And we have 71% of people who find a patch of club roots um, that aren't pulling it or applying the soil amendment, in addition to 72% um, of it not people not seeding it to grass or marking it off. And so in my perfect world recommendation, I would love people to make almost like a metaphorical rock on that, on that patch of club root and uh, seed it to, um, you know, apply some soil and then apply a soil amendment, seed it to grass and mark it off so that we completely avoid uh, disturbing that patch of club root and really allowing that spore load to decrease. So with that, I'm not sure if I've gone over time, but we wanna make sure that uh, we continue or, or we get club root resistance in that field. It's the most effective way to keep spores low. And uh, again, it's, very, it's a very manageable disease, but we need to be integrative and proactive uh, to continually grow uh, canola. That was Brittany Vischer. Next is Clinton Yerke, Agronomy Director for the Canola Council of Canada. Clint will explain how to choose black leg resistance genes. Here's Clint. I guess the, the question is, is why are we talking about black leg when we're talking about uh, selecting the right cultivar for the right field, which is one of our, our key agronomic priorities uh, for the canola industry is, is that if we can do a better job at choosing the right product for each field, then uh, then we believe that uh, yields are, are certainly going to go up and grow our profitability will grow up. So Black Lake, like Black Lake is is a big deal. And, and even though you might not see it in every field, uh, if you're looking for it, it is a big deal. Like Black Lake is the number one uh, canola disease worldwide. And it used to be the biggest disease here in the prairies until about 2000 when new resistance came out and, and did a really good job at controlling the disease for about 10 years. But in the last 10 years, black leg has been going up and black legs become a trade issue with, with China. And we need to, to do a better job at, at managing uh, this disease, not only for our overall productivity, but for profitability and, and for our, our trade situation. So to manage black leg, we have a, a five step process of increasing your rotation so the amount of time in between canola crop allows the disease to decompose uh, do a better job at identifying the disease in the field and i'm going to talk about that in a little bit of detail but what i'm going to spend most of my time talking about is the use of, of resistant cultivars or varieties and managing those resistance sources those resistance genes so that they will last a long period of time and there are some fungicides that that uh, actually uh, showing a lot of promise as well but Let's go straight to scouting. So we, we need to scout for this disease. Uh, 
not only just to identify if the pathogen is there or not there, but to quantify it, to know if it is an increasing problem on a farm or within a field and knowing how much disease is there is, is going to be really important to not only uh, production and yield, but to know about profitability. Just in the, in the last year, uh, we've, we've launched a new tool on the canola calculator. So if you go to canolacalculator.ca, there's a black leg yield loss calculator, which will tell us specifically, and, and actually the, the model that it's used in this, which was funded with grower levy dollars, has, is really robust. And it was research done at the University of, of Alberta, which quite specifically tells us how much yield is, is being lost if you go out and, and cut stems at the end of the season and rate them on, on a zero to five scale. This uh, model will as well that you put in that rating, uh, you put in how much yield you expect that that field should be uh, receiving, but uh, it will as well, uh, if you put in the, the price that you expect to receive will give us a financial result. and. Knowing these numbers are really critical for you to determine uh, how successful you are at, at managing this, this disease in the longer term. So scouting for the disease, uh, measuring its yield is, is quite important, but where I wanna spend most of my time is, is actually talking about resistance and choosing the right cultivar based upon resistance. Now you're probably aware of, of like the R, MR, MS and S categories of, of black leg resistance. They've been used since the eighties. And essentially what it is, is that plant pathologists at the end of the season, they go out, cut stems, like what we're encouraging agronomists and growers to do. And they calculate the amount of infection and then compare that to a susceptible check, which is uh, an old variety from uh, the late eighties called West Star. And on the basis of that, you can categorize the, the amount of resistance. But this label, it's, it's while it gives us a, a general idea of, of how that product or that cultivar is going to perform uh, across the prairies, it is based upon three or four black leg nurseries that are spread across the prairies. And it gives us an average rating of, of how that, that will perform. It does not tell us specifically how this uh, product is going to perform in a given field for, for black leg. And that is the reason why we, we've, uh, that there's some new resistance labels that, that have come uh, and are being used in the marketplace. <clears throat> Before I talk about these new labels, I need to really define the, the two types of resistance that are, are present in, in canola. One type of resistance is called major gene resistance. The other type is, is called quantitative resistance for adult plants or minor gene resistance. The major gene resistance is, is kind of like a, a light switch. It's an on or off. If the, if the resistance gene recognizes that the pathogen is starting that infection in the plant, it turns on its resistance and kills the pathogen. So there's no more infection that essentially stops, turns it right off. Well, adult plant resistance or quantitative resistance is more like a dimmer switch. The more resistance genes you got, the more it will slow down the disease progression within the plant. Plant still gets infected, it still has disease, but the more resistance that's there, the more it slows it down. So that's why it's called the quantitative amount. But with that uh, major gene resistance, um, that pathogen needs to be detected by the plant for this resistance to work. And so that major gene has to recognize that pathogen. If it doesn't, like the pathogen somehow gets around it, then it still gets infected. 
And so that's where it becomes tricky. And that's why there's some new black leg resistance labels that have, have recently come to, to the marketplace. And that's, that's uh, these labels, uh, RGA, RGB, RGC. Sometimes we just call them ABCD. The RG stands for resistance group and they refer to specific resistance genes. Now in this uh, snapshot from the Manitoba Seed Guide, you can see that under the black leg resistance, there's two columns, uh, a resistance rating, which are all R's. So this is that field rating that, that all seed companies do to get a variety registered. There's also the resistance group column. And you might notice that at the top, uh, we have uh, this Brett Young variety as an example that has CE1. So that means it has two different uh, resistance genes that are in it, uh, resistance gene C and resistance gene E1. And there's other cultivars out there that are, that'll have like AE2 or AG. So when you have multiple uh, RG labels there, then that means there's multiple resistance genes within those varieties. So that's good. Uh, these labels have been agreed by all seed company uh, experts within their within their organizations that these are the, the right labels that, that we should be using as, as an industry. And so they are showing some pretty good uh, efficacy for, for dealing with the disease. But here's where we run into the problem is, is stewardship. We need to make these resistance genes durable and last into the long haul. But unfortunately, what happens is that when we overuse a resistance gene in a field or spread over a wide geography, the pathogen will change and then that resistance will, will no longer be functional. And, and we saw this happen with the very first type of resistance that came to market, which was in a variety in 1995 called Quantum. It had that RGC uh, resistance, so the resistance group C. And it was used very widely by most seed companies uh, across the prairies. And what's happened is, the, as a result, the pathogen has changed so that that resistance gene no longer works uh, across. So that C group uh, is essentially a, a non-functional resistance gene. So we need to avoid that from happening uh, with the rest of the resistance groups that, that, we're, that we're using out there. If we overuse one resistance gene in a field, uh, we can certainly erode uh, that resistance. So the, the good news is that we have a tool for, for detecting what specific races of the pathogen are, are present in the field. And this uh, work was funded as well by Grower Levy Dollars. And we really wanna thank the, the growers for funding this because now there's three or four labs across the, the prairies where you can send samples and they will tell you specifically what races are, are present in, in, a, uh, in the pathogen population. So as an example, here we have a field that has three races, uh, the AVRLM2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, or 7, 11, that's one race and it comprises 25% of the population. This uh, race comprises 50% of the population and this race has 25%. So there's three races that were detected in this field. What these labels or numbers with these AVRLM uh, numbers refer to is which resistance genes will be effective at controlling it. So the red highlighted one indicates that RLM4, which is resistance group D, will control all of these uh, pathotype races that are, that are in the field. And we have other uh, races uh, here, or, or avirulence genes here that correspond to a resistance gene 11 that uh, does not yet exist. But the good news is, is that 
uh, researchers are working on bringing uh, new types of resistance to the marketplace. So this resistance uh, gene RLM11 is uh, currently being developed and funded by SAS Canola to uh, put this gene into canola varieties so that we'll have a, another type of resistance uh, eventually for, for, for the marketplace. When it comes to picking out the right cultivar, you really need to understand what's happening within the fields. You need to know what uh, diseases you have. Do you have cloverage? Do you have sclerotinia? Do you have black leg? And what types of resistance you've used in the past, because we want those resistance genes to last a long uh, period of time. So selecting the right cultivar for the right fields to manage these, uh, these different pathotypes, these different races that are present in the field is going to be our, our key to being successful. And so when we think of like how much yield loss can be uh, experienced by a, a disease, like in club root, uh, when the disease is really high, 50% yield losses are possible. Black leg, maybe not quite that high anymore, but still some very high levels that when you are experiencing 10, 15, 20% yield loss, that is often a loss that's going to be much greater than, than the yield potential of, of a variety. So don't always select a variety or cultivar on the basis of yield. Take a look at what's the threat within the field and picking the right product that's going to deal with it is one of our keys to success. That was Clint Yerke. Now we have Aaron Willenberg. Aaron provides strategic direction on agronomy and market development for Winfield United Canada. Aaron will provide tips on how to evaluate each field to prioritize which canola traits are most important. Here's Aaron. So just to, to kick things off, Jay had uh, had sent me a couple questions just to talk through today. I didn't put a, a presentation together, but to talk through in terms of how to uh, choose the right canola cultivar for each field. And, and he first of all asked me to talk about, is that possible to have the right canola cultivar for, for each field? And, and I do think it is possible. And I think it's something that we should add to our to our decision making process. I think having a, a conversation about choosing the right cultivar for each field really helps uh, helps growers and agronomists to to think a little bit differently about the hybrids they're selecting. You know, I think it's easy to say, uh, "Is this variety of club root resistance? Is it a high yielder? Perfect. Let's uh, let's move on." But I think there's a lot more to it than that. I you know, I think there's something to be said for, for risk management as well and diversifying your hybrid selection. You know, reflecting on this year, I think folks, some folks wish they would have uh, looked at some different maturities. You know, maybe we could have chose a, a real early hybrid that was, uh, was done flowering before the, the heat of mid-July set in. Um, you know, some growers try new hybrids every year. Uh, and and that's great, but I think it's more uh, starting to think about why you're choosing those hybrids and how they may perform on certain fields is 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 pretty important. One thing we need to to realize and wrap our heads around is that there's a lot of great canola hybrids out there. If you look at the 2020 uh, canola performance trials, for example, there was 16 replicated sites and. And if you look within each herbicide system, there's really only a 4% variance in yield amongst those hybrids. So there's a lot of great choice and a lot of yield, uh, great yield potential hybrids on, on the market today. And, and those hybrids had a variety of options in, 
in herbicide resistance, disease resistance, and now perhaps shatter tolerance ratings, of course, maturity and standability, and, and they all yielded really well. So I think it's about digging a little bit deeper into that field history and, and looking at things like rotations, weed spectrum, and the disease history as, uh, as Clint and Brittany talked about a bit today, and, and starting to couple that with with experiences, trial data, and, and grower management to, to try to decide what's in, important. And another example of that would be, you know, if a, a grower's management practice always uh, has them spraying quite late in the season, should we be moving a few acres over to the TruFlex uh, system where you can spray uh, a bit later? You know, of course, staying on top of weeds and, and spraying them early is, is super important, but, uh, you know, if that is part of your yearly management that you do get behind on spring because you have a lot of acres, let's let's think about that and think about how that can be part of our, our decision making. Um, one other thing that, that Jay wanted me to touch on was using genetic resistance traits in the in the canola hybrid selection process. And he asked specifically about black leg and, and club root and how do farmers make the right decision on those traits and I tried to to answer that in in one quick sentence but it's it's really not that easy I think you know first of all no matter what the disease the grower the agronomist needs to be out there scouting and and paying attention and having good record keeping systems I know there's a ton of them out there that that people use to various degrees but certainly keeping track of of disease incidence and, and severity, as well as what hybrid you've been using is, is pretty important. Um, maybe I'll make a couple comments on blackleg and a, and a couple on club roots, and then I'll, uh, I'll turn it back to you, Jay. But certainly on blackleg, um, Clint, Clint went through those uh, major gene resistance packages and, and chose what, showed what was available. But, you know, if you don't have the field records of, of what you're using or what the specific R gene package was, you know, what could you do instead? So, you know, if you've always been using one company or one R gene, perhaps there is an opportunity to switch if you if you see that what you're currently doing isn't working. Um, you know, you can certainly ask the company if they're not publicly sharing their R genes, if, if they know if it would be a good fit for you, or if they have really strong minor gene resistance, I think that's a, a conversation you could you could have as well. Um, you know, I, I know pathology is really different from, from herbicide resistance, but we're really good at paying attention to what herbicides we're using and people are documenting it. Don't use too many group twos. Don't use group nine too often. Make sure you're tank mixing. And that's kind of a common conversation. But, you know, genetic resistance, especially around blackleg, it's, it's not that common yet. So keeping those notes on what are the major resistance genes that you're using or at least the varieties or hybrids that you're you're growing, at least you'll have those notes if if something's going wrong and you you need to look back. Now, just a, a couple comments on on club root and I'll I'll wrap it up here. But we know with club root it's super important to take a proactive approach, right? Um, Brittany alluded to it a couple times. Using resistance as part of that proactive approach is is super important to keep those spore levels uh, low and local. You know, we always encourage farmers to use a, a club root resistant variety, even if they don't think they have club root. Those early infestations can be missed for years while the pathogen builds up to damaging levels. So, 
you know, using a club root resistant variety, I feel like that's the easy part of the conversation, but it's often overlooked that, uh, that resistance is not immunity. Okay, so to have a R rating to club roots, um, what that means is that the variety has to have less than 30% disease infection con compared to a susceptible variety. So those club root resistant sources can still get it infected and it's important to really keep, keep scouting. And you know, there's areas where our pathotype composition is, is diverse. And, you know, maybe we thought for a while that we only had one pathotype, but when we started to look back into those, those goals, it was a diverse set of pathotypes. So we really, really need to be focusing on stewardship in, in combination with genetics. Just to sum that up, I would say scouting, record keeping and working really closely with your genetic supplier to, to understand what they're offering. That was Aaron Willenberg. Our final presentation is a pre-recorded segment from Nicola Dow, Manitoba farmer and director with Manitoba Canola Growers. Nicola is a champion of the new pod shatter rating system for canola cultivars and explains how it will work. The canola shatter rating is a, a new tool that will help farmers with managing the risk of shatter loss in their canola. And to start off, I want to give you a bit of the background of how this came to be, not just what it is, but how it came to be. And the, the 2020 growing season was really critical to this process happening. Um, the last number of years have been really challenging for a lot of farmers across the prairies, and 2020 was no exception. Um, there was a lot of challenges going on in our world, but on the farm, we experienced some really extreme heat, some extreme drought, and at least in Manitoba, extreme wind. And all of that came together to create really the perfect storm for shatter loss. And so following harvest, when our Manitoba Canola Growers Board met, it was one of our big topics of discussion. And we wanted to do something about it to help and support our members. And so we brought a motion forward to the WCCRRC. It isn't quite in their purview, but it was a group where all of the right people were together. And so with the support of um, the other two provinces, farmer canola groups, um, as well as the WCCRRC committee, we got a green light to go ahead and work on developing a rating. So there was a subcommittee that had already been in place. Um, we re revitalized it with myself as the new chair. Um, and that group was made up of representation for farmers from all three provinces, as well as really broad representation from across the seed and breeding industry, along with um, some support folks. So people from the Canola Council, people from Ag Canada, we decided to develop a risk assessment tool that would represent a canola cultivar's um, relative risk of shatter. So it's not about a percentage of loss or anything like that, but um, about risk. And we set two designated checks that would anchor our scale. Um, we chose cultivars that both are familiar to farmers and also to breeders that would work well as anchor points. The scale itself is a one to nine scale 
with one being a very high risk of shatter and nine being a very low risk of shatter. And you can see that we have those two cultivars that are our anchor points marked in there. So anything that would be falling in a one to four range is something that a grower would definitely want to be swathing. These are cultivars that wouldn't be suitable for straight cut. And anything that has a five or higher, it doesn't mean you have to straight cut it, but it's something that would be kind of in that suitability range and that a farmer um, or an agronomist giving a recommendation can use those numbers to um, assess the risk going on in their field and make the management decision that's best for their farm. So these shatter ratings are important. They don't change the genetics, they don't change the environment or what will happen in your field, but it is a valuable tool in helping to set expectations and giving farmers something tangible um, in managing harvest operations. And if you're working with multiple cultivars, having a bit more of an idea what to expect. If you're trying out something new, again, having an expectation in place. Thanks, Nicola. If you want to see Nicola's slides, which include a great graphic of the rating scale and names the two Czech cultivars, please go to youtube.com slash canola council. All four of the presentation videos are posted. We'll close this podcast with a Q&A segment from the webinar. Days to maturity with a cultivar came up a few times this, this year, trying to get ahead of heat if, if possible. Um, and, and for particularly during the flowering stage of canola, do you have any advice uh, for farmers and agronomists on, on the days to maturity choice? Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. So growers of course are, are aware of what growing season zone they're in. So in the short season, you're often limited, but in the long season, you do have an opportunity to uh, to choose different uh, different lengths of season, and you know if I told you to grow a short season variety in a long season zone, the heat would probably come at exactly the wrong time. So it is very hard to predict when that that heat's going to come. But my best advice would be to to change it up a little bit and to perhaps consider some varieties that are a little bit of a longer season and and have some that are shorter season to to really. Um, make sure you don't have all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Yeah, great, thanks, Aaron. Okay, I've got a question for Quint on the resistance genes uh, labels for black leg. So it, with that example you gave Clint, that chart, a lot of the, the hybrids or cultivars didn't have uh, a gene identified. If, you're, if a, you're a farmer buying one of those, how do you know what gene it has? That, that is a challenge, uh, certainly. Uh, we, we know that not all cultivars or varieties or hybrids or whatever you want to call them have, have, the, uh, have the R gene labels for, for black leg out there. Uh, so what we are encouraging uh, producers and agronomists to do is, is, is to talk to uh, the seed company that directly as to what they would recommend uh, for, for rotating uh, it, it between their, their products. I, I know like the, the, Due to limits of time, I didn't really have an opportunity to talk about uh, quantitative resistance very much. Um, most seed companies in, in most of their products do have that quantitative resistance. So that's that dimmer switch uh, resistance operating in the background. And, and a lot of times they'll have like an R gene 
stacked on top of that uh, quantitative resistance. But the, one of the challenges as an industry, we don't know, we don't have a way of, of measuring that, that quantitative resistance, how much is in there just yet. We're maybe still a year away from, from having a, that technology or that, that rating uh, available. So in the, in the meantime, what we are encouraging growers to do is, is to have a conversation with the seed company directly to find out what they would recommend in that situation if they believe that their quantitative resistance is sufficient enough. But unfortunately, it's, it's hard to know uh, exactly how those products are, are going to perform in a specific field uh, and until one, you, you know what the races are there and then two, what, what the major resistance genes are. Then you can have a very, uh, a very good idea of, of how to manage that risk. Um, so it's, it's still a little bit buyer beware, unfortunately, with, with some of those products that are still out there. Thanks, Clint. All right, so we're going to come back to you with this next question, Clint, but I want to give it to Brittany first. If we return to normal moisture levels, at what part of the growth cycle of the canola plant is moisture going to elevate the spore load of both clubroot and black lake? So there was quite a few questions that came up this year with, with the dryness and how the spores respond. And if we, I don't know, not necessarily solve clubroot, but if the spore load has drastically reduced, there isn't a ton of research yet on dry conditions or the, the timely amounts of moisture, um, but I can tell you this. So dry conditions do not kill spores, clubroot spores specifically. Um, I'm only speaking of clubroot. <laughs> so uh, dry spores do not, or sorry, dry conditions do not kill spores, but we do know moist conditions increase the germination of spores. And then also those flagellas on the zoospores require water to move to the host. So when we remove that, we're not getting the germination. And then if any spores do uh, germinate, they have to get to the host by swimming. So um, clubroot is actually quite surprisingly difficult to grow if you don't have the appropriate conditions. So if you have a cooler environment or it's uh, quite dry. Clint has seen uh, probably more clubroot than you might've thought in a dry year. Unfortunately, um, I wasn't out in the field as much, but I saw in my greenhouse, I had like a billion spores per gram of soil uh, and I didn't, water it at the appropriate time and I had no clubroot symptoms. However, we do also know with um, canola and the spores that the, the plants are most susceptible at a younger stage and we need very few days to have that secondary infection. Um, in a, in a like, optimal environment, it only needs seven days post-inoculation to create those gall, galling symptoms on the canola plant. So, um, yeah, a couple dry years is not going to really help us specifically with club roots. Um, once we get that moisture in the spring or over the winter, they're just going to be, yeah, they're going to they're going to be go going. Yeah. Okay. Clint, what about dry years in Black Lake? Yeah. So um, I agree with with Brittany is that that we had a little bit of a reprieve this year for for a lot of the diseases, sclerotinia, Black Lake, club root were all down, um, but that pathogen population is still there and it's, it's, it's waiting for us. So once we get back to kind of wetter conditions, we will, we'll expect to see a resumption of, the, of those diseases. Okay. Well, I'm going back to you again, Clint, for the black leg question. Um, does quantitative resistance stop the black leg pathogen from reproducing? Uh, good question. No, it doesn't. 
Uh, major gene resistance does, um, but quantitative resistance, the pathogen still gets into the plant, still is present in the canola residue at the end of the season. And therefore, once that plant is dead, then it, it grows saprophytically. So decomposing dead tissue and, and is able to, to reproduce and produces more spores. So relying solely on quantitative resistance, unfortunately, it does increase the pathogen load in a field uh, as compared to major gene. The ultimate solution is, is actually having a quantitative resistance, which slows the disease down, put the major gene on top that, that is good against those races. And then you've, you've got the, the full package that, that works really, really well. Lots of science that shows that the stack of those two systems is the best. To close the webinar, we gave Aaron, Clint, and Brittany a chance for a 30-second recap. Sure. I think uh, my, my main comment would be that there's a lot that's not known yet about uh, how to manage clubroot. And our researchers are have a lot on the go right now. So I would encourage agronomists and farmers really to keep their ear to the ground, to pay attention to the new research that's, that's coming out and try to work to uh, include that in, in your decision making. Just because you, you believe something about clubroot or blackleg today doesn't mean it'll necessarily be true in two years or five years from now. So try to stay on top of the research and the new extension messaging and, and use that in your hybrid decision making. Good. Thanks, Aaron. Clint. Yeah, my final message is, yeah, don't grow one cultivar across your entire farm. Um, like, I think that the industry, we're moving more and more to more precision and thinking of fields as, as management zones and even getting down to per square foot levels. We need to be thinking more strategically about our, our varieties that we're growing. And, and Aaron certainly indicated that we need to think uh, more precisely in, in a holistic fashion. I know that for 2022, seed decisions are mostly made right now, but we have an opportunity for 2023 that if you do a really good job at spending time in the field, scouting for what are the real yield robbers that you're experiencing, um, really understand what is happening in those fields. You can select which traits will be able to correct that more specifically for 2023 so that once you start making those decisions in the fall, uh, you'll make the better decisions and have a really good year in 2023. So good luck out there. Good. Thanks, Clint. Brittany, last word. I want uh, people to think of clubroot almost like blackleg, not to be, not to have such a, I wish it, there wasn't such a negative stigma around it so that people could talk about it more. Um, you know, also look at cultivars and not think that you're going to have a yield drag or it's going to cost more. I want it to be more relaxed for people to, to talk about it, learn how to manage it. Um, and then, you know, we can hopefully get ahead of this pathogen. You can watch all segments of this webinar, including the slides, at youtube.com slash canola council. Thank you, Brittany, Clint, Aaron, and Nicola. Also, thank you to the host organizations of this webinar series, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, Manitoba Canola Growers, and the Canola Council of Canada. If this topic is of interest to you, you might also like to read the article, Choose the Right Cultivar for Each Field, in the Fundamentals section at canolawatch.org. Also, please register for upcoming Canola Watch webinars to hear the content firsthand and participate in the live Q&A. Find details at your Provincial Canola Association website or at canolacouncil.org in the Events section under the About Us tab.
This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for listening.